Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we bow as disciples of your Son and of the Word of God. And our prayer is that you might move us by your good spirit to see Jesus as the Greeks of old would see Jesus and see him in all of the scriptures, even this marvelous passage that is before us this evening. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. From your last week's outline, we had a leftover at the bottom of that second page, uh, which I'll pick up with this evening, so you may want to refer back to that, uh, even though you have another fuller or more complete outline of 1 Samuel 17, uh, beginning from verse 8 on the handout for tonight. As we learned last week, the first three verses of 1 Samuel 17 contain a rather elaborate account of the juxtaposition of the Philistines and the Israelites. The geographical contrast of space occupied by the two armies or military camps is pinpointed between two villages on either side of a central valley, on two opposing mountaintops. Verse 3 ends with a static standoff, mute, unmoving, antithetical standoff. What is between them, the end of verse 3, is followed by the space in between, verse 4, and becomes the focal point of the ensuing drama. I remind you that I translate the word champion in verse 4 literally, namely from the Hebrew text, the man in the space in between. A space in between, then becomes the central focus of the drama. This element of logistical or geographical contrast stands at the inauguration of a chapter full of contrasts, of narrative contrasts, which not only deal with armed camps, but of heroic champions of those contrastive armed camps. The clash of champions will be dramatically counterpoised. Their armor will be differentiated. Their weapons starkly antithetical. Their vocations will be contrasted. The one a professional soldier, the other a young shepherd. Their battle styles will be contrasted, as will be their personal speech. And at the end of our narrator's account of this encounter, one will be dead and the other will live. Surely a reminder of ultimate and permanent contrast 
between life and death. As our narrator unfolds his masterful record, and it is a narrative masterpiece, he juxtaposes much more than geography. He juxtaposes ethos, belief system, bedrock of confidence, gods and destiny. Geographical contrast sets the stage for the antithetical contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom opposed to God. Let's turn now to verses 4 to 7 and ask ourselves what our narrator is doing in this narrative unit. Keep in mind that in the geographical description of verses 1 to 3, our narrator has invited our attention to shift with contrastive focus from Soko to Azeka, from the line of Saul and Israel to the battle line of the camp of the Philistines from the mountain on which the Philistines are deployed to the mountain on which Israel is deployed. Now, in verse 4, our attention is arrested by the figure in the center of the antithetical geographical space. How does our narrator do this? He arrests our attention on that figure in that space by drawing our eye upwards to the height of Goliath's stature, nine feet and a span or nine feet six inches, and working top down, following downward a description of his armed head, his armed body or trunk, his armed greaves or shin guards, the so-called tools of ignorance in the baseball profession, the catcher's shin guards. Note the paired elements, helmet upon his head, scale armor upon his body, greaves upon his legs, javelin, more likely a carved or not curved, not carved, a curved sword, somewhat like a scimitar, a curved sword slung between his shoulders and spear in his hand. There is something else to notice about this description. It is slow. It is deliberate. It is drawn out. And why does our narrator draw out this description? Elaboration enhances intimidation. The eye scans from head to foot, scans a formidable figure line by line, piece by piece, as the eye takes in each individual feature of his armament. And as the observer drinks each piece of weaponry in from head to toe, he slowly realizes how impregnable 
is this armed fortress of a Philistine. Once again, we notice the master stroke of our masterful narrator. This is nothing less than brilliant literature. Brilliant literature. Now, I must make a side comment here on commentators who see in this chapter, David and Goliath, a reflection of the duel of champions motif found especially in Greek mythology. Homer's Iliad with the duels of Greek and Trojan champions, such as Ajax and Hector, Achilles and Hector. While it is not impossible that ancient Near Eastern as well as ancient Greco-Trojan cultures may have determined conflict via a duel of champions, I remain unpersuaded of pervasive Aegean themes in Semitic narrative, especially biblical Hebrew narrative. But I alert you to the fact that you will find this allusion in certain commentaries on this chapter. They see the Hebrews imitating or copying Greek mythology here. All liberals see that. I do not. And now the antagonist speaks. Verse 8. The characterization of Goliath advances from physical size, armor, and weaponry to what comes out of his mouth. And what comes out of his mouth is an indication of what comes up out of his heart, arising from his nature, his character of thought processes, how he thinks, his character of emotion, how he feels, his character of attitude, to use the contemporary expression, and all the matter of his mind, heart, nature, and attitude is contempt. Goliath may be characterized from the words from his very own mouth as contemptuous, contemptuous of the living God, his kingdom, and his people. There are eight lines in the Hebrew text of this speech in verses 8 to 10. I will come back to this fact later on this evening, but I want you to note it for the present. You can't see it in your English translation, but in the original Hebrew text, there are eight lines of Goliath's speech in verses 8 through 10. For the present, there are some notable parallel or symmetrical lines of expression in this bluster. Choose a man, verse 8. Give me a man, verse 10. Servants of Saul, verse 8. Become our servants, verse 9. These parallel expressions make it easier to understand Goliath's opening remark, 
what may appear as a nebulous interrogative is parallel to the crystal clear declarative in verse 10. I defy the ranks of Israel. The question with which Goliath begins is parallel to the declaration he makes in ending his diatribe. Why do you come out, verse 8, is equally defiant with I defy you, verse 10. Goliath's defiance is anchored in his disdain for the nation of Israel. Notice the contrast. There's that narrative element of contrast once again. Notice the contrast between am I not a Philistine, verse 8, and you are servants of Saul, verse 9. That will elaborate, I'm sorry, verse 9 will elaborate upon what Goliath means here by the contrast between am I not a Philistine and you are servants of Saul. He is bragging that he is a Philistine and not a servant or not a slave, which is the stronger word that could be translated here. He is boasting that he is a free man, unshackled by any servant bondage to a lackey master such as Saul. And he is furthermore scornfully projecting that all Saul's slaves will become slaves to the Philistines. The Israelites are not free men, even as they stand over against him. They are mere pawns in his estimation, tools of taskmaster Saul. And if he prevails, they will be subjugated even further, reduced to Philistine slavery, slaves twice over, which is the point of his stinger at the end of verse 9, you shall become our slaves and slave for us. Notice the duplication. Double contempt and double degradation. His swaggering taunt, his bellowing, I dare you, concludes with a renewed challenge. Note the end of verse 8, come down to me, a renewed challenge at the end of verse 10 for a man to appear before him so that they may fight together. Fight together in the space in between. Even Goliath places the focus on the space in between. Verse 11 records the first reaction of the Israelites. They are greatly afraid. Well, in fact, verse 11 is not the first reaction of the Israelites. Notice how the narrator recorded no reaction after the physical description, the physically intimidating description of the giant in verse 7. Israel 
in verse 7, stands dumbfounded in the face of this humongous human fortress. Now, after he does more than stand as an armed colossus before them, after he opens his mouth with scorn and loathing, Israel fears greatly. And finally, in verse 24, Israel not only stands dumbstruck, Israel not only fears greatly, in verse 24, Israel runs from the field in terror of Goliath's thundering harangue, morning and evening harangue, over the space of 40 days and 40 nights, verse 16. Goliath applies psychological warfare day after day after day, morning, evening, day after day after day. Our camera now leaves the valley of Elah in verse 12 to shift location. Once again, shifting scene to Bethlehem and the house of Jesse the Ephratite. I note in passing the suggestive mention of Bethlehem Ephrata, a name and a space which will re-echo from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, to Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Please keep in mind that each David narrative to this point has featured the little town of Bethlehem and the house of Jesse. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 13 and chapter 16, verses 14 to 23. Our narrator uses a flashback technique to bring us up to speed in a meanwhile back at the ranch device, or more appropriately here, meanwhile back in Bethlehem device. Verses 12 to 31 contain a lengthy and deliberate focus upon David, Bethlehem, and his family as their story interfaces with the story of Saul and Goliath between Soko and Azekah. We may expect characterization and geographical location to dramatize David and his approach to the space in between. Verse 12 opens with David in Bethlehem. Verse 31 ends with David before Saul on the mountain above the valley of Elah. And verse 15 indicates that David moves between these two venues, Bethlehem and the camp of Israel. David moves back and forth between these two venues, serving his father's request to take provisions to his three brothers 
the very same three brothers who appeared in chapter 16 when they were passed over by the Lord and by the prophet Samuel. Chapter 17, verse 13, compared with chapter 16, verses 6 through 9. Notice the back and forth movement, which is bracketed by verse 12 and verse 15. From Bethlehem back to Bethlehem. From his father in Bethlehem in verse 12 to his father at Bethlehem in verse 15. And out of Bethlehem, house of bread, will flow Lahem, bread, in verse 17, to sustain Jesse's sons and David's brothers. I have given you the Hebrew terms for Bethlehem there uh, on your sheet. Hebrew is read from right to left so that you would begin with the first character on the right-hand side of those two words, and you would be reading the first character as a B, the second character as a long A sound, and the third character as the TH. Then for the second word, you would begin with the first character as a letter L, the second character as the letter H, and the terminal character as the letter M. So you read from right to left, Beth, Lehem. The Lehem, which is the second word there, L-E-H-E-M, is the Hebrew word for bread. The term Beth is the Hebrew word for house. So Bethlehem means house of bread, and you may remember that image from the gleaning fields that Boaz operated in the book of Ruth, the gleaning fields around Bethlehem, the house of bread. The contrast, I should say, the out out of Bethlehem comes the bread to sustain Jesse's sons and David's brothers, the contrast between the oldest sons in verse 13 and the youngest child, verse 14, is heightened by the contrastive roles each plays. Soldiers versus shepherd. The Davidic shepherd motif dominates even the relational distinction between these four siblings. That motif is emphatically auspicious. Is there something suggestive, perhaps even prophetic, in the parallel back and forth movement of David and Goliath in verses 15 and 16? David back and forth from the venue of conflict to Bethlehem, Goliath back and forth in the venue of conflict to the space in between. Is there something auspicious, something perhaps proleptic of this back and forth movement of the narrator's drama that the space in between is ever focal in his dramatic tale?
and now verses 17 and 18. A bit of a replay of chapter 16, verse 20. The hospitable Jesse of Bethlehem is again the considerate fatherly Jesse of his own sons. Lehem bred from Bethlehem for King Saul, and Lehem loaves of bread from Bethlehem for Eliav, Aminadav, and Shammah. David's mission and commission will thrust him into more than the role of a messenger shepherd boy. He will be caught up in the drama of this theater of war. And as he is drawn into the circle of Saul, of the army of Israel, the circle of his brothers, the circle of the man in the space in between, the narrator masterfully blends the narrative of David with a narrative of the standoff between the army of Israel and the army of Philistia. Our primary character has arrived upon the field of action. And now our narrator signals, let the cameras continue to roll. Into the lens of our camera lumbers the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, verse 23. Antagonist, center stage, protagonist in the nosebleed seats, focused center stage. And as David hears the words, the defiant speech of the antagonist, The narrative drama will now focus on speech, dialogue, spoken lines. The light verter in this section, verses 23 to 31, is the Hebrew word davar, the Hebrew term for word, or speaking, or talking. Eleven times that term appears in verses 23 through 31. The drama now unfolds in the narrator's masterful telling of the tale. The drama unfolds by speech, by words, by spoken conversation. David's speech or words frame the unit. As he was speaking or talking, verse 23, the words which David spoke, verse 31, the shift advances from the taunting speech of Goliath to the undaunted speech of David. The best that the speechless Saul can do in the face of the 40-day tirade of the enemy, is to offer a reward. My daughter and a wealthy dowry for the man who kills the behemoth. Don't ask me to kill him. I am as terrorized of him as I am terrorized by the evil spirit from the Lord that exacerbates my natural hesitancy. Hesitant 
indecisive Saul is descending into cowardice. Gripped by his own sinful fear, Saul is being dragged down into the vector of yellow-bellied cowardice. Now, notice the placement of David's speech in verse 26. It is sandwiched between the men of Israel in verse 25 and the people of Israel understood in verse 27. At the center of the Israel bracket is David, not Saul, not Saul. David's words in verse 26 are double interrogatives. The first is informational. The second is rhetorical. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Question number one. We know from verse 25 the answer to this question, and it is reinforced to the recently arrived David in verse 27. The second question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God, is a rhetorical question. That is, no answer is expected to the question. The form in this case is more declarative than interrogative. In the Hebrew text, as you will notice from your handout, there is a double key clause in this second question of David. That uh, character, uh, which is actually two letters in Hebrew, is pronounced key. And once again, you read it from right to left. It's called a key clause. And it means, in this case, key for A, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, and key B, that he defies the armies of the living God. The repetition of the key term makes it a duplicate key clause. Now, this is not a symmetrical parallelism. Rather, it is an enhanced or augmented parallelism. Along the lines of something we mentioned in our first presentation three weeks ago, what is A, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, and what is more B, that he defies the armies of the living God? David will not listen to the taunts of an uncircumcised pagan who, serving dumb, lifeless idols, defies, mocks, and insults the armies of the ever-living eternal God. The speech of the heroic protagonist answers the speech of the diabolic antagonist. But David must bear taunts and reproach from his very own flesh and blood. 
It is as if Eliab sees David as he sees the Philistine, one whose insolence is an insult to the soldiers of Israel. Eliab's contemptuous, contemptuous remark about David's few sheep is on the level of Goliath's contemptuous remark about Israel being Saul's slaves. Notice how Eliab charges him with wickedness of heart in verse 28. Eliab still does not see, as he did not see in chapter 16. Eliab still does not see that God sees his brother as a man after God's own heart. And Eliab once again refuses the verdict of God the Lord with respect to the shepherd king of Israel. David must bear not only the reproach of the Gentile Philistine, he must bear the reproach of his native-born Jewish flesh and blood. Surely he has borne their reproach. David bristles in verse 29. David bristles with righteous indignation and turns away from the unjust accusation in the integrity of his God-changed, God-transformed, God-loved heart. Bearing the reproach, he nonetheless declares his innocence and his integrity and prepares to approach the space in between. We come now to the triumph before the triumph, verses 32 to 39. The triumph before the triumph. Again, our drama is advanced by means of speech. In this narrative unit, David's descriptive speech about his triumph over the marauding bear and lion. But he begins with what may appear to be a piece of bravado. Verse 32 Let no man's heart fail on account of Goliath. David's heart has not failed no more than God's heart has failed in the face of curses hurled against his ever-living, ever-blessed name. David's heart after God's heart, a union of hearts, a communion of affection, a joining of one heart to the divine heart, graciously, wonderfully, intimately, lovingly, courageously. Courageous, David says, I will fight with him, verse 32. Cowardly Saul says, You are not able to fight with him, verse 33. Saul appears the unwitting mirror 
of Goliath here, verse 9, if he is able to fight with me, says the Philistine. And Saul continues to promote Goliath. You are but a youth. From his youth, Goliath has been a warrior, verse 33. David's lack of military experience is brought up by Saul in order to delist him from the category of a trained warrior qualified to meet Goliath on an equal footing. But David's experience is not that of a soldier's boot camp and deployment. He declines the armor of Saul, verses 38 and 39, the soldier's armor of Saul, the warrior armor like Goliath's. David declines the equipment with which he has no experience. I have not tested them, that is, I have no experience of them or with them, verse 39, because he is confident of the equipment with which he does have experience. I will take the weapons of my warfare that I have tried, tested, and used with success time and time and time again. And with these sure weapons, I will go and fight this Philistine. David proceeds confidently because David has already experienced the delivering power of the living God. His already experience is the foundation of his not yet experience. He had already time past experienced God's living presence when the marauding wild beast, lion and bear, attacked the flock, verse 34. And he had already, time past, experienced God's living presence when the marauding wild beast, paw of the lion, paw of the bear, rose up against him, verse 35. And he has already, time past, experienced God's living presence in the deliverance from the bear and from the lion. And as he has experienced that, he advances full of faith in God's living presence now, time presence present in deliverance of the wild, beastly, marauding Goliath into his hand, time future. Notice the conjunction, killing the lion and the bear, delivering the lamb and himself, deliverance via destruction of the enemy, the threat to the life of the Lamb. That threat can only be canceled by the death of the threat. Life and death are locked in an inexorable struggle. Either death 
conquers life or life conquers death. When it is a matter of life or death, life must destroy death or inevitably death will destroy life. In this warfare, there is no middle ground. And every wild, beastly marauder understands that. His taunting bravado is terror. I will frighten you into submitting to me. And because you cower in the face of my death threats, I own your life which will become nothing but a living death. The only way you can conquer me is by reversing my death with life. Life which is poured out unto death that my power of death will be canceled by the power of an endless life. Only life willing to die can alter my living death with resurrection life. The protological David enters the portal of the life and death of the eschatological David. C.S. Lewis's Aslan enters the very same portal at the great stone table. Christian allegory is of great help to Christian theology. So, too, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and his even better allegory, Bunyan's Holy War. And John White's five-book Archives of Anthropos series, which includes the Iron Scepter and the Tower of Geburah. Great books for Christian parents to read aloud to their children. Great books for Christian grandparents to read aloud to their grandchildren. Great books for great experiences of reading on the Lord's Sabbath day when he gives you rest to read great books aloud to your children and your grandchildren. Try sanctifying your Sabbath with reading some great Christian books to your family. Now you will observe that David's statement at the end of verse 36, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, one of the wild beasts, because he has taunted the armies of the living God. David's statement is the answer to his very own question back up in verse 26. The double key clause interrogative. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that he should taunt the armies of the living God. And this living God, end of verse 36, is hooked to the Lord Yahweh in the beginning of verse 37. The majestic God of creation and providence, Elohim, is woven hook-like with the gracious God, Yahweh, of mercy, deliverance, and redemption, verse 37. The duplicate repetition of the word deliver may also be translated from the Hebrew rescue. The duplicate repetition of the word deliver emphatically underscores the role of a new character introduced by David into this dramatic narrative. The Lord God is now a combatant. The Lord God has now come on to the stage of the drama with David as he was in chapter 16, verse 18, with David as he is now in chapter 17, verse 37, It is the Lord God Immo with him, the Lord God Imak with you, the Lord God Imanu with us, Immanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, God with David, God with you. The Emmanuel presence of God incarnational, eschatologically breaking forth into redemptive time and space. Emmanuel with David going forth to conquer the uncircumcised Philistine. God himself is united with the Davidic protagonist in this conflict, Protological David and eschatological God joined in the space in between. Having put off the weapons he has not experienced, David now assembles the weapons he has experienced. Another narrative contrast between the weapons to which he is unaccustomed, verses 38 and 39, and the weapons to which he is well accustomed, verse 40. The stick, please notice verse 43, the stick is his shepherd's staff. The pouch is his shepherd's bag. And the sling is in his shepherd hand. The skill of those who were masters of the sling is mentioned in Judges chapter 20, verse 16. 700 select southpaws, left-handed men. 700 select left-handed men could sling a stone at a hair, at a hair, and not miss. It is estimated that a stone released from such a sling hurtled through the air at speeds between 100 and 150 miles per hour. A lethal force indeed. 
And every Jewish boy was trained to release the sling and strike a hare. Notice the link which provides the transition to the most, to the next part of the narrative. Protagonist and antagonist approach one another, verse 40 and verse 41. The wide-angle lens which panned the valley of Ela at the top of our story, a lens which narrows its long focus from the top of Goliath's head to the bottom of his feet, a lens which pans back and forth between Bethlehem and Saul's camp, that lens now ratchets itself down to draw two figures within its field of vision. The narrator brings the drama to its climax by featuring two figures only. Two contrastive figures only. One, the Christ of God, anointed of the Lord. The other, the Antichrist, against God, despiser of the Lord and his anointed. The lens of the camera catches Goliath in character. He scorns. He disdains. He is contemptuous of David, verse 42, even as he scorned, disdained, and displayed contempt for the whole army of Israel for 40 days and 40 nights. Am I a dog? Note the contrast with Goliath's opening interrogative. Am I not a Philistine? Verse 8. The arrogant champion wonders that he is an animal, a beast, a cur, like the lion and the bear whom David slew in the hills of Bethlehem. And Goliath, once again in character, Goliath curses David by his gods. And who was the most noteworthy of the Philistine gods? Dagon. And what had happened to Dagon when the Ark of the Covenant earlier on in this book of First Samuel was captured by the Philistines? First Samuel 4 and 5. Dagon fell on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 1 Samuel 5, verse 3. Does our narrator record that incident as a foreshadowing device? Goliath blusters one last time, verse 44, declaring, David will be carrion for the wild beasts of the ground and offal for the predators of the sky. Goliath's creed is, might makes right, and I believe in myself, the Almighty. He has an apostle's creed to himself. And in the space in between, 
The creed of contempt and condescension is met by the creed of confession and confidence. David's final speech, speech answering speech, verses 45 to 47, is eight lines of Hebrew long. You remember I alerted you to the eight lines of Hebrew in a previous speech, Goliath's speech in verses 8 to 10. Our narrator records eight lines of Davidic speech to counter eight lines of Philistine speech. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You couldn't write a story like this. It takes divine inspiration. But it is remarkable literature and needs to be read as inspired, remarkable, brilliant, masterful literature. Not just a little moral tale about little guys knocking off big guys. How blasphemous it is for ESPN commentators to roll out David and Goliath when the Steelers knock off the Seahawks or some such utter nonsense. And now, the God who is with David, the Emmanuel Lord, verse 37. The God who is with David is confessed by David, named by David as his Lord and his God. Again, the element of contrast, notice verse 43 Goliath's unnamed gods, in stark contrast with Yahweh Sabaoth, the name above every name, the name of the God of the armies of Israel, the God of hosts. And these hosts are the hosts of the angelic armies of the Lord God. Neither sword, nor spear, nor javelin. Notice, David does not mention his staff, his stones, or his sling. Neither sword, nor spear, nor javelin. No military might will deliver me into your hand. But the might of the Lord of hosts will deliver you into my hand. You will not make me or us carry in for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Rather, contrastive parallelism, I will make you and your army carcasses for the birds of the air and beasts of the ground. Everyone will know, all the earth will learn, that there is a God in Israel a living God in Israel who reveals himself in time and the space in between. 
that whosoever believes on him will be delivered. Delivered from death and the curse and scorn and contempt of the evil one. And whosoever reads this story of David and Goliath will know that it is not about David. It is about the God of Israel and the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, almighty deliverer of the cursed, the scorned, the as good as dead Israel of God of the end of the age. A son of God, our Lord and our God, the son of God delivers by life out of death. This story still speaks. First Samuel 17 still speaketh that you may know There was a God in Israel who in these last days has revealed himself once and for all in his son, the eschatological David, that you may be delivered from the marauding kingdom of evil and darkness. The actual confrontation in verse 48 graphically portrays the encounter between the two antagonists. Goliath approaches. He approaches via three plodding verbs. He rose and he came and he drew nigh. The lumbering Colossus ponderously moves towards David. David runs quickly towards Goliath, one darting verb. And as he runs, David loads and launches, loads and launches a stone from his whirling sling, a stone directed by an unseen hand, to the chink in Goliath's armor, the Achilles heel, if you will, the vulnerable spot, the unprotected part of his forehead just above his eyes where the smallest of lethal missiles could land with such force that the giant would be toppled face down. I read verse 50 as reporting that Goliath was killed by the stone to the forehead. Cutting off his head is not the fatal blow. It is the fulfillment of David's vow in verse 46 to lift off Goliath's head as he would lift off the reproach and scorn and contempt which flowed from that arrogant head and mind and mouth. Remove the reproach on Israel that this uncircumcised Philistine's curses had piled upon the anointed of the Lord, his little flock, and the Lord God Sabaoth himself. The display of Goliath's head in Jerusalem, verse 54, is a testimony to the silence the permanent silence of the lips that uttered blasphemies against the Lord 
and against his Messiah. The cowardice now passes over the space in between to possess the camp of the Philistines, and the rout is on. It is not Israelite bodies which fall on the roads leading out of the valley of Elah. The corpses of Philistine troops lay scattered along the road to Gath and Ekron, carrying for the raptors and the scavengers, the vultures and jackals that penetrate the space and the geography of the arena in between. Life emerges from the space in between where death, breathing out its taunts and threats, has been destroyed. I'll give you a moment to take a break. I'll take some questions if you happen to have any. Uh, Last week we had a question about the word prolepsis. Uh, it is a Greek word. It comes from a combination of prolombano, which means to take before. In other words, to anticipate. So the word prolepsis, proleptic, refers to that which is anticipatory, prophetic, that which foreshadows or projects ahead of time. Uh, Robert, question over here. Yeah, um, we know that Satan is a imitator and a twister of truth. And a liar, right? You notice here that uh, just like in the Garden of Eden where Satan twisted God's word and Eve correctly turned it back around to what it was supposed to be. You see here where uh, Goliath is uh, calling the Israelites servants or slaves of Saul. And then here David, when he arrives, he turns it back around and puts it in its proper context and says these are the Israel is the army of the living God. And then in verse 45, he goes into a long diatribe and is directed straight at Goliath, who is the one who twisted it in the first place. Your observation about reverse vectors is correct. Uh, whether it could go all the way back to the guard motif or not, I think that's another uh, question. But nonetheless, the fact that David is turning Goliath's words back upon himself is accurate. Also, I notice that you see a similarity here where it goes into this long description of Goliath's armor. The same kind of uh, description is in Ephesians or in the New Testament, where it talks about the armor of putting on the armor of God, yeah, it's in Ephesians. It's almost yeah. a direct parallel, isn't it? It's not an exact direct parallel, but there are similarities. Uh, I wouldn't draw a direct correspondence between those two passages, um, simply because I think that Paul is doing something which is not anchored in this narrative per se. Well, take uh, take a moment to stretch your legs, and we'll come back in about five minutes. I have drawn a Christocentric connection between the first and second David via this narrative in 1 Samuel 17. 
the redemptive historical or biblical theological significance of the narrative proclaims a universal effect of the curse, namely terror and horror and death as the trump cards of the prince of the kingdom of darkness. He who is the champion of the manifold manifold legions of Antichrist, hellish scorn, hellish taunts, blasphemy against the living God, contempt for the servants of the Lord, defiance of heaven and all the heavenly host. Fear and dread of this hellish manifestation shackles the universe dominated by the prince of the power of the air. David stands in that arena. David encounters the bond slave of that dark lord and vanquishes him, God with him. But the curse remains. The curse even grips David himself. And with its own dread tentacles, endeavors to wrap David up in its own death grasp and drag his flesh as carrion down to the pit of Sheol. No dispatch of a solitary Goliath dispatches the universal curse which reaches out to enwrap even the protological David. An eschatological David must arrive to triumph over the curse and vanquish it once and for all. But what will prevent the curse hanging on as it did after David's very own encounter with it? What will prevent history repeating itself in an endless cycle of curse and victory with no final rupture of the power of the cursed terror? What? Who? How? It is the narrative irony of the history of redemption that addresses this very question. A narrative irony fundamentally incarnated in God becoming flesh. That reverse paradigm, God becomes man, is the key that unlocks the mystery of the history of redemption. No arrest of the endless cycle like the myth of Sisyphus, no arrest 
of the endless cycle will arrive if man under the curse is the highest measure of history and redemption. Only a reverse narrative paradigm which casts God in the role of the cursed can break the endless cycle of curse dominating man ad infinitum. Another David must come. Another David must come not merely to triumph over the powers of the curse and its death darkness. Such a second David only replays what the first David plays out. No break in the cycle there, just another hero to replay more of the same old, same old. No, rather another Christ Messiah must come to submit himself to the curse, uncursed. Submit himself to humiliation, by nature exalted above humiliation. Bind himself to defeat the undefeated. God must reverse himself. God must reverse himself vicariously rendering himself in time and space as the obverse. Infinite God must become finite man. Sinless God, the Son, must become contradicted with the weight of sin. Uncursed, ever-blessed Son of God must become never-blessed, cursed Son of dereliction. The last David must do what the first David was unable to do. He must bind himself to the powers of the prince of darkness, the horrors of the curse, the dereliction of his heavenly father's averted face. He must become the victim of the story of the curse, taking the scorn, the reproach, the contempt, The death, bloody death. He must take it upon himself. He must die in the space in between as David did not. And then he must do what David could not. He must rise from the dead. So that now the space in between belongs to him, not to the curse, not to the Antichrist, not to the mockers and scorners of the living God and of his Christ. The cycle of the horizontal, 
The cycle of the horizontal is broken finally once and for all by the entrance of the vertical. The enfleshment of the vertical, the embodiment of the vertical into the space in between. 1 Samuel 17 reveals what God has done by his own invasion into space and time, time past. But 1 Samuel 17 projects what God will do by the invasion of his son into space and time, time future, and world without end. This is Christocentric drama. Revelation <clears throat> demands it. The protological, eschatological tandem demands it. The Christ of the Valley of Elah requires the Christ of the Hill Calvary and the empty tomb of a garden of resurrection life. You must understand that only a biblical, theological, redemptive, historical, eschatological hermeneutic can understand the revelation of David and Goliath. Everything else reduces it to the horizon, the horizontal. One final footnote on verses 55 to 58, which indirectly will address a question that was raised last week about the integrity of the narratives, the duplicate symmetry in the interrogatives once more in this section indicates narrative integrity. Not narrative contrivance, nor narrative invention. Notice whose son in verse 55 is a duplication, is duplicated in verse 58, whose son. We need to read, he said to Abner in verse 55, as a pluperfect tense. He had said to Abner. When had Saul said it? Verse 55 again. When he saw David going out against Goliath. Hence, this is a reference to an exchange with Abner at the time of verse 40, it is another flashback device in this 17th chapter. Verse 57 is thus a flash forward when David returned from killing the Philistine. The issue is not that Saul is unacquainted with David as if this incident belies 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23, when David first attends Saul with his musical lyre. Note, Saul does not say, who is he, but whose 
son is he, verse 55. He has forgotten David's patronymic or his pedigree in the heart and turmoil and intimidation of Goliath's day-in, day-out bluster. This question obviously anticipates Saul's next narrative sequestration of David from his father in verse 2 of chapter 18. In other words, Saul's question here at the end of chapter 17 is an open attempt to break the relation between David and his father so that he may retain him permanently as his servant or his courtier or his court musician, or his mighty warrior, etc., as chapter 18, verse 2 suggests. Abner, of course, knows nothing of David's past, as he declares in verse 55, because Saul's army commander-in-chief, notice 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, Abner... Saul's army commander-in-chief was not involved in the scene in which David first comes to Saul's court in chapter 16, verses 14 to 23. There is therefore nothing out of order or out of place in these final four verses of 1 Samuel 17. It is a flashback device which will anticipate a flash forward to a remark that Saul makes in verse 2 of the subsequent chapter. Our narrator doesn't repeat themes without connecting them or hooking them together, and that's what he's doing with his seamless narrative flow here. Turning now to 1 Samuel chapter 18. You'll notice from your handout that I'm drawing attention to the macro narrative, that is, to the larger narrative development which we have observed since we began looking at David's life in chapter 16. I've outlined it in two uh, motifs. First of all, a displacement motif, and second of all, an opposition motif to give you a kind of review of the overall big picture. Looking at the displacement motif, 1 Samuel 16 records the displacement of Saul by David as king of Israel. Saul displaced as king by David. The next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, advances the displacement motif by David displacing Saul as the champion of the army of Israel. David displaces Saul as champion of the people of God. And now, 1 Samuel 18, David displaces Saul within his own family. David displaces Saul inside his own family circle. Now, the motif of this displacement is laid down at the opening of the book of 1 Samuel, particularly in the second chapter with Hannah's song. 
namely the motif that the proud and exalted will be brought low, the downward spiral, and the lowly and the humble will be exalted or brought up the upward spiral. And we've noticed that this downward spiral has caught Saul in its tentacles and is dragging him down, down, down. Two chapters of displacement and evil spirit torment and a chapter in which he is not at the center of the space in the valley in between. No, his displacement and replacement is the champion of the army of Israel. So, the upward spiral of David matches the downward spiral of Saul. We have these opposite vectors, which are narrative drama vectors. They are dramatically unfolding the paradigm of the vortex of the one and the apex of the other. Now, chapter 18. And the descent of Saul deepens down further doth he go in this chapter. All right, another motif is the opposition motif in the macro narrative, the large overall structure in first Samuel 16, David is opposed by the hesitancy of Samuel to anoint him and the hesitancy of his father and brothers to recognize him. There is implicit hesitant opposition to David in chapter 16. In chapter 17, David is opposed by the enmity of Goliath. And so the opposition of the enemies of David continues to advance. Now, in chapter 18, David will be opposed by the enmity of Saul himself. The downward spiral continues. As we make our way through this chapter, the narrative will develop by means of parallels or duplications, which unfold the dramatic contrast between David and Saul and those who love David, and those who hate him. You will be able to pick out these duplications even in your English translation, but pay attention to how the narrator uses duplicate repetition in order to develop or unfold the drama, the sad and tragic drama of what is transpiring here between Saul and David in chapter 18. The narrative spiral gyrates downward for Saul as he descends to jealousy, suspicion, hatred, even murderous hatred. The protological David despised and hated by his own. The narrative thread common to each scene and character, Saul accepted each scene and character in this chapter is love for David. Jonathan loves David. The singing and dancing women love David. The army loves David. All Israel and Judah loves David. Merav loves David, presumably. 
Saul's servants love David. Michael loves David. Everyone loves David in chapter 18 except Saul and the Philistines. Strange allies those. Those in alliance of hate and murderous intent against beloved David. The first narrative unit here is verses 1 to 5, which begin and end with Saul. The drama occurs in the relationship between Jonathan and David, David displacing Saul in his relationship to Jonathan. Here we meet the first of the literary duplications, verse 1 with verse 3. Jonathan loved him, that is, loved David, as himself. The symmetry sandwiches Saul in verse 2 and places him outside the love of David paradigm. This affection between Jonathan and David is confirmed in verse 3 by a covenant. The terms of the covenant we do not learn until chapter 20. But the covenant is confirmed in chapter 18. Here, in this chapter, the emphasis is upon the love. The bond of love which seals this covenant. It is not the bond of law. It is the bond of love. Law cannot bind a covenant between an affectionate God and an affectionate servant of God. Love must light the way as the love between God the Father and God the Son is at the heart of the covenant that results from that love, namely the covenant of grace. The emphasis here upon the love which knits the soul of Jonathan to David duplicates in the knitting of the soul of David to Jonathan. Jonathan is not jealous of David, though he, Jonathan, is the titular crown prince of Israel and the heir apparent to the throne of the house in which he sits with David. In token of his love, in token of Jonathan's self-effacing love, Jonathan ratifies his covenant with a display, an open public display. He disrobes himself, putting off his royal garb. He disrobes himself, putting off his royal armor. 
He puts off his royal sword and his royal bow and his royal belt. He removes from himself the badges and marks of royal kingship and bestows all of these marks and badges upon David, whom he loves. His covenant gift is covenant humiliation. He bows, submitting, dispossessing himself of every one of his royal prerogatives and transfers them to David with all his love. In renouncing his own prerogatives and emblems of royal ascendancy, Jonathan enthrones David. Jonathan enthrones David as true king of Israel. Renouncing his robe and placing it on David is a coronation ritual. His royal weapons are the vestments of the new king. His king. His replacement. His displacement. Jonathan understands that the old era is passing away. Behold, a new era has broken forth with a new king whose heart is knit. A new king whose heart is knit unto the heart of God. Jonathan understands. Jonathan's soul is knit unto David's soul, and he gladly gives place to the new king, the new kingdom, the new era, though it means a better than Jonathan is here. Jonathan, beloved Jonathan, is content. He is content that David increase while he himself must decrease. Surely you see it, don't you? You are not so blind as not to see it. That Jonathan is the John the Baptist figure of the Old Testament. Surely you see it, don't you? But Saul, Saul has not the spirit of Jonathan. He is again buffeted by an evil spirit from God. Verse 5 indicates Saul's recommendation and commendation of David to position of commander over the men of war. That is not to make David commander-in-chief. That is Abner's rank, as we have noted. 
but perhaps David has been promoted to a lieutenant commander. But you will note that the people were pleased with David, and Saul's servants were pleased with David. Notice the repetition, the duplication. But our narrator omits to list Saul among those pleased with David. Saul left off the list. Portentous, ominous omission. Mm. The next narrative unit Verses 6 to 9 will hinge on the contrast between those pleased with David and Saul, who is described as displeased with David in verse 8. And this pivotal reversal is emphatically presented by narrative duplication and repetition. The duplication occurs in parallel speeches. By the dancing, celebrating women in verse 7, and by Saul reacting to their singing by quoting them verbatim. Saul's emerging hatred of David begins in a triumphal ditty in which David appears to get more praise and glory than he, Saul, does. Well, might fuming Saul blurt out, what more does he want but my kingdom? Jonathan, son of the king, is not threatened. He loves David and rejoices with the singing women and the crowds. But Saul, the father of Jonathan, is threatened. He is beginning to despise David and bristles at the women's praise of the upstart hero. And we must make a note here on the proper translation of the song. Some Bibles read, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. The wow or Hebrew and conjunction here is not adversative. That is, but is not an accurate reading of the Hebrew conjunction. The New American Standard Bible is therefore correct in translating. Saul has slain his thousands, and while conjunctive, David his ten thousands. There is no ploy on the women's part to pit Saul over against David adversarially. They are exuberantly praising and rejoicing over both the king as well as the victor over Goliath. They are praising both of them and not but. There is no antithetical comparison in their song, only complementary comparison as they rejoice in what Saul and David have accomplished. But emergent, paranoid King Saul does regard their praise antithetically. 
To his perception, it is an insult. Notice how he reverses the complementary parallelism of the women with a chiastic inversion in verse 8. They ascribe to David 10,000. To me, they ascribe only thousands. Notice what he's done. Perfect reverse chiasm. Chiasm reverses the mutually corresponding complement, thus making it a slight, an affront, a snub. Saul's delusion now causes him to eye David with suspicion, verse 9. The literal reading of the Hebrew there for the word is translated suspicion in some English version is he eyes him. That's more vivid. You can just see Saul glaring at him with his eye every place David moves. All paranoids regard others with the eye of suspicion. Euphoria is matched by paranoia. The element of contrast works itself out through the drama of the balance of this chapter. The obverse of love is hate. And this chapter will pointedly display those emotions. The inverse of love for others is the raging emotion featured here by our narrator, the raving emotion featured here by our narrator. That rage erupts in verse 10. Notice the narrator's duplicate attention to the hand, to what is in the hand, in the hand of Saul, in the hand of David. Saul's hand now becomes the instrument of potential murder. His raving paranoia drives him to hurl his spear not once, but twice at David, verse 11. Saul's downward spiral has grown from suspicion, which feeds fear, fear and dread, which feeds hatred, hatred, which feeds murderous rage. Even God's presence does not arrest Saul's downward spiral. That is, God's presence with David does not arrest Saul's murderous attempts with his spear. The Emmanuel motif only inflames Saul the more. Verse 12, the Lord was with David, will be duplicated in verse 14. The Lord is with David. Saul's persecution of David but emphasizes God's presence with him. How the ungodly despise the godly. Hate them. Because of their God-vectored lives. 
And that divine presence attracts the love of all Israel and Judah in verse 16, before whom David goes in and out. Notice the duplication once again in verses 13 and 16, before whom David goes in and out with approbation. Our characterization of Saul in this chapter reveals that he is oppressed by an evil spirit so that his fear, his dread, his murderous paranoia determines his motives and behavior towards David. This character sketch of David, of Saul rather, must be kept in mind as we approach the next narrative unit. Keep in mind what is happening in Saul's psyche in his emotional center. Verses 17 to 19 appear enigmatic. They appear even bizarre. In fact, some commentators simply say they cannot be sorted out. That is, Saul opens <clears throat> openly offers abruptly his daughter and then withdraws that daughter equally abruptly from a marriage to David. Is this offer in verse 17 innocuous? In other words, it's just incidental. Is it virtuous? That is, it's Saul's doing something nice and offering his daughter. Saul seeking the welfare of his oldest daughter. She is called his oldest daughter in chapter 14, verse 49, by way of a marital union with David. Saul doing something eudaimonistic, something good and beneficial. And yet, we have to ask, why has it taken him so long? Why has it taken him so long to fulfill the promise he made in chapter 17, verse 25, that the victor over Goliath would receive the hand of his daughter and riches beside? Surely we are suspicious at the inordinate delay in Saul's keeping his promise to give his daughter in hand to marriage. And then with this background of hostility and paranoia, the suspicion that is brewing between Saul and David thus far in this 18th chapter, we are again suspicious that the offer of Merov is a ruse, a contrivance, a ploy to ensnare David. And then we learn our suspicions are justified when we read verse 17 when Saul's mind is revealed to us, notice the duplication once again, the hand twice over again in verse 17. The revelation of what is in Saul's mind, what is making him tick, what is driving his psyche in exchange for fighting even more Philistines. David gets Merav and Saul hopes death besides. This is actual treachery in verses 17 to 19. As if David must keep on fighting Philistines to win the prize offered in the valley of Elah. David's demure in verse 18 is difficult to interpret. In fact, it may be impossible to interpret because the Hebrew text here is virtual anarchy. Very, very difficult Hebrew even to translate into English. 
Is he just humbly protesting his unworthiness as the son of a peasant shepherd? Or is David shrewdly answering Saul's shrewd trick by begging off on account of ostensible social status? I leave David's more profound motive and intent unresolved because, quite frankly, I can't solve it either, nor can the commentators. In any event, Saul pulls the old switcheroo and takes Merav and marries her to another. Saul is not only paranoid, he's a control freak, a power broker, manipulating persons in his sphere of influence as he wishes, even breaking his word as he does so. Beware persons who break their word, especially those who attempt to control you by breaking their word. Such control freaks are not only duplicitous liars, they are tyrants. And you will learn the hard way that they can never, ever be trusted. Never. The final narrative unit completes the story of affection for David from within the house of Saul. Jonathan loves him. Merav presumably loves him. Michael loves him. You will notice the inclusio, which brackets this unit. Verse 20, Michael, Saul's daughter, Saul's daughter, loved David. Verse 28, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, namely David. Saul's younger daughter becomes the next pawn in Saul's scheme to kill David. As her love for David becomes clear, Saul ups the ante of the bride price to 104 skins of the Philistines. David, now savvy to what moves Saul's mind and intentions, brings him 200. Verse 22. So that Saul can't pull the old switcheroo once again and yank Michael away at the last minute like he had yanked Merov away. Saul has been outfoxed by David. And he has no alternative but finally to give David the wife he had been promised from Goliath on. But the enmity of Saul for David is now a continual contempt. As if Saul is an imitation of contemptuous Goliath. Indeed, the circle of Saul's life has been drawn down, down, down into the arena of that Antichrist in chapter 17. Saul himself, an ally of the Antichrist in his hatred of the Lord's anointed. Let us leave this chapter by turning our eye of faith once again unto Christ, the eschatological king of whom all true sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven sing and praise as he displaces the kingdom which is passing away. And if John the Baptist embraces this transition
to the ever-increasing kingdom of the Lamb of God, even in the face of the paranoia of the scribes, Pharisees, and rulers of Israel. Even if Christ increased while the Baptist decreases from his deep love of the son of David, then Jonathan, too, has been touched with the revelation of the true king, whom to love and whom to serve, renouncing all, abdicating all, whom to love and to serve is life eternal. Do you have any questions on chapter 18 or any questions on anything that may be on your mind? Margaret. Um, what does David mean? Does, does that name have a meaning? It does. But I can't remember. Okay. I'm sorry. Scott, do you know? What does the name David mean? No, I'd have to look up in my etymology uh, link. <clears throat> That's what I was going to say off the top of my head, but I didn't want to say it without having checked the lexicon. So, <laughs> Ling is suggesting beloved of God, and uh, I'll tip my hat to her and double check it. Any other questions or comments? Anita? He's not aware of his uh, future deaths at this point. He is aware of renouncing his claim and becoming a servant of the true king. His death is a tragic end to one beloved of the Lord's anointed. But I don't think he foresees it or anticipates it either here, chapter 18, or in chapter 20. So it comes upon him in the providence of God. Consequently, what's going on here is a self-renunciation in order to devote himself in affection to the true king. Had he survived the Battle of Gilboa, I am certain that Jonathan would have been one of the chief servants of David in his own kingdom administration. Ling? That is what will be revealed in the terms of the covenant in chapter 20, namely that Jonathan asks David to uh, support his descendants and to protect them in the eventuality of Jonathan's own demise. Though it is the prospective eventuality, not any sense of its imminence or its certainty. And the instance of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4, 9, 16, etc. 
uh, its testimony, the fact that David did fulfill that, in part will deal with the Mephibosheth incident when we get to that and uh, actually observe David's treachery with respect to that covenant. Go ahead. You have another comment? Leviticus 19, where you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. So this is a fulfillment of, namely, the obligation to love yourself in the sense to preserve your own life. And so uh, Jonathan loves him as himself in that sense, that he looks at him as an alter ego. And he would preserve his life as much as he would ask David to preserve his own. So this full self-effacement of affection. There is no suggestion of homosexuality here, although all liberals uh, read this into the narrative. And in fact, uh, many famous uh, shocking and spectacular books have been written of how David loved uh, 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 Jonathan erotically. Uh, That's balderdash. Uh, That's just simply concurrent cultural uh, eisegesis. But it is out there in the literature. It is out there in the preaching of this narrative, particularly in mainline liberal denominations. I mentioned it so that you will, will say that you, so that you can't say you're not aware of it. I'm not trying to shock you. I'm just trying to sensitize you to how a liberal will reduce the text to what the current cultural, social, political issues are. So they'll use the text as a pretext. Another question or comment? All right. Uh, Next week, same time, same station, uh, chapter 19 and perhaps 20. So you can read a couple of chapters ahead if you have uh, the opportunity before class.